Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today's episode comes to us due to a listener request. Martin, many, many moons ago, asked if I could do an episode talking about the evolution of virtualization. And so that's what this episode is all about. But first, what is virtualization? Well, as the name implies, it's all about creating a virtual representation of something else. Now, in computing, we typically use it to mean creating virtual computer platforms. And there are a lot of reasons why you would want to do this. It would be a virtual computer platform that exists on top of actual physical hardware. And you might want to do it for security reasons, to uh, separate different programs and storage systems from one another. You might want to do it to provide different stable development environments so that a mistake in one partition doesn't bring everything else down on the machine. You might want to do it to run different operating systems on the same physical hardware. Or maybe you want to do it to maximize efficiency in your computer system. Or perhaps some combination of some or all of the above. But we'll get into that later. For now, the important thing to know is that the goal is to create a virtual version of something that runs on top of actual physical hardware. Now, the history of virtualization stretches back to the 1960s, well before the days when the average person had any sort of interactions with a computer. Early computers were useful, but had some limitations. This is like the mainframe age of com computers. So, one of those limitations was that early computers could really only run one process at a time, and there had to be a person there to initiate a new program. At first, that wasn't that big of a problem because computers were such a niche gadget. Very few people had any access to them in the first place, so it wasn't that big of a limitation. The scientific and academic communities were using them, but beyond them, very few people had any experience with a computer. They were mostly unknown. But as computers were becoming more available, as businesses were starting to use them, uh, and they were becoming more capable of handling processes that went beyond academic interests, it became clear that the limitations were a liability. And so you had companies like IBM researching ways to get around these limitations. One such way was an approach later called batch processing. This dates from the time when programs were represented on physical cards with holes punched in them known as punch cards, for obvious reasons. So, in an early computer, you'd have a stack of cards representing a single program, and you would feed those cards into the computer's hopper, which is essentially its intake for cards. And the computer would analyze the cards, which would have instructions on them. The computer would then follow those instructions and produce a result and either print it out or create a new punch card or stack of punch cards, or later on, it would display the results on a monitor. IBM developed computers that could accept stacks of cards that represented more than one process. The computer would be able to read out the stacks and complete each process in turn. So you could feed batches of cards to the computer, thus batch processing. It cut down on the amount of time people had to spend babysitting a computer or waiting for their turn to run a process, freeing them up to work on other stuff. 
but it was still a limitation, and you were still stuck running just one process at a time. You would just run them in sequence. And you couldn't easily have multiple people using the same computer at the same time. At best, you could use batch processing to run a second job right after the first one, but it was restrictive, and as computers were becoming more important, this was a problem. In the late 50s and early 1960s, some engineers, or computer scientists, though that term was hardly in use yet, and many in academic fields were very snooty. They didn't quite yet view the subject as worthy of standing on its own. Anyway, some of these innovators began to experiment with ways to get around these limitations. A fellow named John McCarthy, a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, better known as MIT, proposed in 1959 that an IBM 709 mainframe could be tweaked to allow for a few people to use the machine more or less at the same time. He then began to recommend some changes to the university's IBM 704 mainframe to allow what he called a time-stealing mode. In this mode, you could have a batch of jobs running on a computer. Then someone else with an unrelated job shows up, and using time-stealing, the new person could interrupt the batch process to run this other job, and then the batch process could resume, as per normal. Another MIT professor named Fernando Corbato worked on a similar project tweaking the university's IBM 709 mainframe so that four people could use the system at the same time. But these were all solutions using systems that weren't natively designed to support multiple users. They were workarounds. And MIT computer scientists found manufacturers were uninterested in changing that because there seemed to be very little call for it. On July 1, 1963, MIT launched a project originally called Mathematics and Computation, or MAC. But later, the acronym would be retroactively applied to the phrase multiple access computer. Funding for the project came courtesy of ARPA, which would later get its own acronym update to DARPA. And in case you are unfamiliar with that organization, it's a division within the United States Department of Defense, and its mission is to fund research and development into technologies that contribute to the defense of the country in some way. So why was the Department of Defense interested in this? It largely had to do with Russia and Sputnik. Now, I've talked about how Sputnik helped spur on a ton of innovation in the United States. It scared the daylights out of people in the U.S. It suggested that Russia was much further along, technologically speaking, than the U.S. had suspected, and it lit a fire under the proverbial backside of the U.S. military. And so there was a strong incentive to advance computer science and technology in the U.S. to outpace the Russians. Project Mac's primary purpose was to advance computer science in several ways, including the development of new operating systems and computational theory. It largely grew out of a meeting between MIT professor Robert Fano and Joseph C.R. Licklider, who had previously established a psychology group in the electrical engineering department of MIT, then gone on to join a research firm called Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, better known as BBN, and then was named the first director of ARPA's Information Processing Techniques Office, or IPTO. Licklider convinced Fano to head up Project MAC, which would receive funding from the IPTO. 
through ARPA. But standing in the way of this goal were the limitations I've mentioned already. It's hard to make real progress if you're limited to just one person working on one computer at any given time. And so MIT sought out proposals from companies like General Electric and IBM to develop a computer system that could support multiple users through this time-sharing idea. Now, the basic idea behind time sharing is that you have multiple workstations that all connect back to the same computer. The workstations are all dummy terminals or thin clients. The computer can only work on one job at a time, but it can do so at a pretty darn fast pace. And so as you run a job at your workstation, the computer waits for a break in its processing of other jobs, then slots your job in that break and runs your job. To you, it's like you've got the full attention of the computer, but in reality, the computer is actually switching back and forth between users, finishing each job quickly before moving on to the next one, rather than doing all the jobs at the same time. The benefit of timesharing is that it's as if you've increased the number of computers by the number of workstations, and so more people can take advantage of the computer than with older systems. You reduce downtime, you increase efficiency, and more people can actually get stuff done. IBM was initially not interested in working with MIT. The company wasn't convinced that a multi-user computer was going to be that big of a deal and that most of their customers would have no need for such a computer. So rather than dedicate the time and resources needed to develop something that the company wasn't convinced would ever be an actual product, it would just be a one-off, they bowed out. And so GE became the vendor for the early days of Project Mac. But over at IBM, minds were slowly changing. The Project Mac contract was a big deal with a lot of funding at that time. And then it became known that Bell Labs was also looking out for a system that would grant access to multiple users to a computer at the same time. And this was enough for the folks at IBM to say, huh, maybe we were wrong. And they changed their minds and they put some work into developing such a system. They created a prototype called the CP40 mainframe computer. The computer never became a product sold by IBM, but was used internally in IBM's labs. But the CP40 will be really important in our story because it was the starting point for a journey that would take us to the first commercial mainframe computer system that could support virtualization. The time-sharing approach involved sharing parts of a computer's processing capabilities, such as its system memory uh, or its storage, and sharing that with each user. But this was not just useful, it was also limiting. If something went wrong for one user, it would affect everyone on that computer. Creating more meaningful partitions that would isolate each user would be more useful. Now, typically, we describe this process as a hypervisor, or sometimes as a control program. A hypervisor's job is to separate the applications and operating system running on a computer from the computer's actual hardware. There are a couple of different types of hypervisors. Type 1 hypervisors are also known as bare metal hypervisors because they exist in a layer that's directly on top of a machine's hardware. Then you have type 2 hypervisors. That's a software layer that exists over top the existing machine's operating system. So there's an extra layer of abstraction there. Now, through a hypervisor, a single machine can host multiple virtual guest machines. This idea would be further explored in the next phase, that of true virtualization, which I'll get to in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break.
Okay, so we just got into what you could think of as the prehistoric virtualization era, with hypervisor technology just coming into development. IBM was at the forefront of this research with the CP40 mainframe system in the 1960s. The system ran on a special operating system called CP-CMS, which originally stood for Control Program slash Cambridge Monitor System, though later CMS would change to mean Conversational Monitor System, and I've even seen a couple of other variants out there. The control program part was what allowed for this early virtualization in the CP40. It effectively created a full virtualization of the underlying hardware of the CP40 for each virtual machine. So people on dumb terminals, terminals that did not have their own solely dedicated computer, could have a virtual computer at their disposal. All the work was actually being done on top of the single CP40 prototype. But to each user, it was as if they had access to their own individual computer. The virtualization software partitioned computer assets to each user. This wasn't just a matter of convenience. It also allowed for rapid innovation. Programmers could work on their own virtual machines, creating applications without having to worry about a bug affecting everyone else. The partitions provided protection. So, if you were plugging away on a difficult section of code and your coworker fouled something up on their virtual machine, you didn't have to worry about their mistake bringing you down with them. Each virtual machine acted like its own individual physical computer. You can see some similarities between this model of computing and what would come much later in the era of cloud computing and the brief age of netbooks. Uh, technically, netbooks are still around, but they are no longer the heyday-type device that they were for a very short while. The netbook essentially had a five-year run from 2007 to 2012, and it's a category of lightweight laptop computers that had modest specifications because the real purpose of the computer was to use cloud-based services. You didn't have to have a beefy computer because most of the processing was taking place somewhere else. The netbooks were a type of thin client, kind of like those dummy terminals used in time-sharing mainframe systems. You didn't have to have a lot of horsepower, you just needed input devices like a keyboard and output devices like a display, and the actual computing was happening on some other machine out on the internet. We'll talk about that more a bit later in this episode. So while work on and with the CP40 system was going, IBM researchers were looking into other breakthroughs that would become important for computers in general and virtualization in particular. In 1965, IBM announced it was developing a 32-bit central processing unit that included virtual memory hardware. In it, This was called the IBM System Slash 360. IBM researchers used what they learned developing the CP40 to create the CP67, which was built on this IBM system slash 360-67 hardware. I love these names, by the way. They're so much fun to say. <laughs> anyway, this would be the first computer to support virtualization that would actually be widely available as a commercial product, not just a prototype. This was an important component for mainframe users, but it wouldn't really transfer to micro or mini computers. So this is still in the mainframe age where you have the big centralized computer. And it's not a, that big of a surprise. You know, a mainframe is a centralized machine, but later computers didn't necessarily follow that model. Instead, you could have a computer at your own desk. The need to partition and separate your machine from everyone else 
wasn't as pressing since you were working on an actual separate piece of hardware rather than sharing a centralized computer amongst everybody else. And the hardware you were using was capable enough to do whatever it was you were doing. Miniaturization reached the point where it was possible to produce a relatively small computer, especially compared to the giant mainframes of the 1950s and 1960s, and it could handle all the tasks that your average user could throw at it. So we started to see a shift away from this centralized model of the mainframe strategy to a decentralized approach in which everyone would work on their own separate machine. This would continue and accelerate in the mid to late 1970s when the personal computer emerged and the general public began to dip their proverbial toe in the computational pool or something. Now, that's not to say that all work on virtualization stopped completely in the 1970s. It certainly didn't speed up, and it pretty much remained in the domain of mainframe computers, which still had their uses, but in niche cases. In fact, increasingly niche cases. So whether they were legacy systems that companies depended upon to keep business going or they were more powerful machines that could be realized in the smaller formats, you know, they were these uh, powerful machines that were being used for very specific tasks, they still had a place. It was just a reduced place. And that was pretty much where virtualization was stuck until the mid-1980s. That's when a company called Locus Computing Corporation developed special software in collaboration with AT&T for a computer called the AT&T 6300+. The computer's operating system was Unix SVR2. Now, the thing about Unix is it's an operating system that can support Unix programs, but it couldn't run DOS-based programs on its own. And for those of you who aren't familiar with DOS, it was the text-based operating system used by many computers. There were lots of different flavors of DOS. Uh, uh, Apple had its own sort of version, but the one that everyone really knew was MS-DOS, the Microsoft flavor of DOS. That was the the most popular version of the text-based operating system out there for IBM and IBM-compatible machines. So there were a lot of programs developed for MS-DOS and DOS in general, but you couldn't run them on a Unix-based device. So Locus developed some software that would handle the interaction between DOS programs designed for the 8086 instruction set that DOS programs were, were reliant upon, and the underlying Unix operating system. So it's kind of like a, a liaison between those. The software would become known as Merge and would be one of the first virtual machine managing or VMM products on the market. So now you could have a Unix machine and still run DOS programs on top of it by having this virtual DOS machine running on the Unix hardware. This would mark a new era in which companies would make software that would allow computers running on one type of operating system and hardware to run an instance of a different operating system. And it opened up access to other types of programs. Most of us don't tend to work on Unix systems, but what about Macs versus PCs? You know that a Mac computer can't run a DOS or later on a Windows program and vice versa, Windows computer can't run a Mac program. But developers created virtual machine software that would allow a Macintosh computer to run a virtual instance of DOS on a Mac, meaning you could access those DOS programs on a Macintosh while running this virtual machine software. Suddenly, you could take advantage of programs meant for another type of computer on your own machine. 
By the way, it probably comes as very little surprise to those of you who are familiar with Apple that the company was not a fan of anyone running the Mac operating system on a non-Apple machine. Through virtualization, this was technically possible, but Apple maintained that the only legal way to do it was to run macOS on a virtual platform on top of another Apple-branded computer. So why would you want to run a virtual version of macOS on top of a computer already running macOS? One reason would be to test a new program against multiple versions of a single operating system. So you might want to run your new Mac program against the latest version of macOS and then the previous versions of macOS to see if it's still compatible, making sure you have backwards compatibility written in there. That would be handy to know. For about a decade, that was the state of virtualization. Companies made programs that would allow users to run one operating system on top of a machine running a different operating system. It was useful for people who were developing software for other platforms, but beyond that, there wasn't much general use for it because, again, everyone was relying on their own individual computers anyway. You didn't have to worry about creating partitions between users for the most part. There were other manifestations of virtualization that would come on the scene a little bit later. In the early 1990s, a team at Sun Microsystems was hard at work developing a new programming language that would eventually take on the name Java. Initially, the idea was that this programming language would allow developers to create programs running on home appliances like televisions. The need for a language that developers could use to create programs for different platforms was obvious because these appliances would be coming from different manufacturers who would be working with different microprocessor companies, so there was no guarantee that televisions from two different companies would have similar microchips in them. Now, this is a non-trivial problem. If you are a programmer, you have to make some practical decisions that have little to do with the actual purpose of your application. And one of those decisions is, what platform will I develop for? Frequently, the answer that many developers gravitate toward is, I want to develop for the most popular platform out there because it represents the largest potential customer base. To put it another way, let's say you're making a video game, and let's say there's only two consoles that are on the market. One of those consoles has a 90% market share, and the other has a 10% market share, and they're both great game consoles, but you're more likely to focus on developing the game for the one that has the 90% market share because that's where most of the gamers are. But what if you could create a programming language that could work on different platforms despite the underlying hardware? That was the idea behind Java. So programmer James Gosling and his team set out to create a programming language that could work on top of any device that was running a Java virtual machine. While the resulting language wasn't used in TVs at that time, it quickly became recognized as a valuable tool for web development by the time the Java development kit debuted in 1996. By then, the web was really starting to take off, but it was also pretty limited. All sorts of computers were acting as servers on the internet, running on different hardware and using different operating systems, and there was a need for more dynamic, interesting, rich experiences online but with everyone running different systems, it was impossible to guarantee that a web app would work for everyone. Java helped take that pressure off. It was a write-once-run-anywhere programming language. And so the language was adopted widely on the web, with web browsers building Java applets to support it within the browser itself. This virtualization made rich internet experiences possible. 
As it turns out, the internet in general, and the web in particular, would create the perfect environment for the evolution of virtualization. This appeals to common sense. After all, the internet is a network of networks, and each network can potentially include millions of computers running on different operating systems and hardware. This makes common sense, right? After all, the internet is a network of networks, and each network can potentially include millions of computers running on different operating systems and hardware. When we come back, I'll talk about how virtualization really took off in the late 90s and what's been going on up to today. But first, let's take a quick break. In a way, you could say that the internet made the evolution of virtualization not just possible, but necessary. Typically, IT departments like to dedicate servers to a specific task. They handle that one task and nothing else. This dedication helps keep things streamlined and reduces the chance that different tasks will start to interfere with one another and cause stability issues. But as the internet was growing faster and faster, it became clear that this particular strategy was going to be unsustainable. It was just getting too big and too complex. Servers are expensive. And they're not just expensive to purchase, they're also expensive to operate and maintain. If you're dedicating a single server to every single task, and you're adding to the number of services you have on offer, your server room is going to get really crowded really quickly. Those machines take up physical space. Then you have other considerations you have to take into account, such as having a sufficient cooling system to keep everything operational, because computers don't do well when they overheat. And as you add more machines, you're generating more and more heat. So you got to cool them down more effectively. Uh, then you have to figure out how much electricity these things are you know, gobbling up. It's, it's getting more expensive as you're adding more servers. And, and then there's the question of downtime. It's quite possible that some servers will be in less demand than others. So you might have one server operating at about 15% of its overall capacity, and it's essentially idling the other 85% of the day. That's not an efficient use of resources. If you've got 50 servers, but all of them are working at 15%, you're saying, wow, I'm, I'm really inefficient with how I'm using these machines. Virtualization would prove to be a solution to this problem, but it wasn't an easy solution. One of the big challenges facing developers at that time was that the x86 architecture that many modern computers rely upon wasn't designed with virtualization in mind, and there were some hurdles to overcome. And you may have heard of x86, and maybe you wonder, what the heck does that actually mean? It's a reference to Intel's 8086 microprocessor, which originally debuted in 1978. The 8086 architecture is the foundation for successive processors, such as the 8286, the 8386, and the 8486. So if you've ever heard someone talking about like a 386 or a 486 computer, they were actually talking about this particular architecture. It's a computer that's based off this microprocessor architecture, which was largely designed so that it could be backwards compatible while adding to the various features and the processing speed generation to generation. More importantly, it became the dominant architecture for computing platforms, including internet servers. But, as I said, that architecture was not created with virtualization in mind. 
and there were several key instructions that, when virtualized, would tend to cause an x86 system to crash. So while there was a growing need for virtualization as the internet was growing, there was this challenge of implementing virtualization without actually making everything crash all the time. Enter VMware. Now, I'll have to do a full episode on the company of VMware someday. It's known for its virtualization software. In 2001, VMware would introduce virtualization platforms for internet servers that handled the operations of virtualization in a way that wouldn't trigger these system crashes. So now you could run virtualization software on x86 architecture systems and not have to worry about them just completely crapping out on you at a moment's notice. At first, the products were actually slow to catch on. It was not yet apparent how useful they would be, but that would change, and VMware's early entry into the space would mean that the company would end up holding a dominant portion of the virtualization market, even as other software companies caught on to it. Now, to avoid this episode just becoming a list of release dates for virtualization software, I'm going to summarize this to say that companies like Virtutech, AMD, Connectix, uh, Vertius, Sun, and then later Oracle when it would buy Sun Microsystems, uh, also Microsoft itself, all of them released various virtualization solutions over the years. Some were built to take advantage of changes in architecture, such as 64-bit instruction sets, but beyond these technical specifications, there's not really that much to talk about. So I think it's better to go back to a broad picture, because otherwise, all I'm telling you is that the virtualization software improved so that it could take advantage of improvements in microprocessor design. That gets really boring really fast. So how did virtualization actually help in the internet age? Well, by using this special software, an IT admin could take a single existing internet server and then create multiple virtual servers. And then each virtual server would perform as if it was its own physical machine, similar to the way previous implementations of virtualization would do. But, you know, in those cases, you were talking about running a different operating system on top of a machine or something like that. But in this case, all of the virtual servers would exist on top of a single device. And with careful planning, you could build out virtual servers to make each physical machine more efficient by run, making it run closer to capacity, right? So instead of running at 15% capacity, you might have it running at 70 or 80% capacity. Now, you never really want to run at full capacity because you could have response time issues. If, there, if the demand is exceeding the server's ability to serve up data, then you're going to have performance problems. But if you could get it closer to capacity, then you have less downtime for your machine and you're making better use of your equipment. And with the right virtual machine management software, each individual virtual server is totally partitioned from the others, which helps you maintain security and stability. If one virtual server does go down, the other virtual servers on top of that same physical machine should be able to continue to operate without being affected. So let's say you're a company and you have four different apps. This is just a very 
basic example. So you've got a server and you divided it into four virtual servers. And then one of your virtual servers for one of those apps fails. The other three apps should still be able to operate just fine. Meanwhile, you've got an IT admin frantically trying to fix the problem on the virtual server of the affected app and get it back online as fast as possible. But ideally, you're doing this in a way where your other operations aren't being affected at all. So not only could you get better use out of your hardware using virtualization, you could also reduce the number of physical servers you had in your data centers. And this would become increasingly important as cloud services came on the scene and grew in popularity. A large cloud service, whether it's offering an operational platform or storage space or something else, requires an awful lot of hardware. But that requirement would be gargantuan if it weren't for virtualization. For example, one of the many important concepts in computing is redundancy. That is, making sure the service you offer remains available even in the event of a failure in the system. And this is true for all sorts of services, but it's probably easiest to understand if we take something that most of us have had experience with. So let's talk about cloud storage. Let's say you're using an online data storage service like Google Drive. So you've stored some files on Google Drive. You've created numerous documents or you've uploaded files into your personal Google Drive, and you expect to be able to access those files whenever and wherever you need them, assuming you have some sort of internet connection. And you know that your files are not living on your own personal computer or device. It's living on the cloud. So you can use whatever device you want to connect to those files. So the files live somewhere on some server that is owned and operated by Google. And that's partly true, but it's more accurate to say that those files live on multiple servers owned and operated by Google because hardware occasionally fails. And if that were to happen to the machine that's holding your files, you wouldn't be able to get to your stuff. And that would be a problem for you and thus a problem for Google. So to avoid that, Google has copies of all of your files and it's spread across numerous servers to provide redundancy. If one server should fail, Google can switch to a different one to serve up your files to you when you request them, and you get what you want, and you're none the wiser that anything is wrong on the back end. Redundancy is important for any online service, and virtualization can help reduce the physical hardware requirements for redundancy. So now let's say you're the one that's running Google Drive. It's, it's under your direction. And while you'd be using virtual servers, you would likely still want to store the same information from the same client on different physical machines. So let's say you've got two physical servers. You've got server one and server two, and each physical server has four virtual servers on it. So server one has virtual servers A, B, C, and D, and server two has virtual servers E, F, G, and H. Now, technically, you could dedicate virtual servers A and B both of those living on the same physical machine, to act as backups for each other. But if something were to go wrong uh, in one of the virtual environments, it wouldn't affect the other one. They're partitioned from each other. However, if something were to go wrong to the underlying physical hardware, the actual machine that's running everything, you'd be out of luck because you'd lose both your copies or you'd at least not, not be able to access them until you've repaired whatever the problem was. So for that reason, you want to spread the load around your physical machines and you want to keep everything running at a good efficiency, so you want to use virtual servers to reduce downtime. And of course, virtualization is used for all types of cloud services, including app development. Uh, in, in fact, that's a great use of virtualization as it gives developers the chance to program in an environment where they are reassured 
they're not going to mess everything else up if something goes wrong. And so there are companies out there that get massive amounts of revenue from customers who are essentially renting out a virtual server space to develop apps on top of before they develop, uh, develop and deploy those apps into the, into the wild to get them to actual customers. Now, I've talked a lot about why virtualization is useful, but it also presents challenges. It's not a perfect solution to all problems. It also presents opportunities for problems to arise. And one of those is in security. If someone is able to get access to the underlying hardware, either physically or remotely, then they could potentially affect all the virtual servers that are running on that physical machine. So instead of corrupting one service, a bad actor could affect possibly several services. So security is a big concern in the virtualization world and in the information world in general. Another challenge is that there's a lack of established standards in virtualization, though there's movement in the space to change that. And that means that a data center might use several different virtualization strategies, which in turn means the IT department has to be able to handle all that. And this can get pretty tough as organizations and systems grow more complicated. There's also the problem that as systems grow, things can be forgotten. Just keeping track of all those virtual machines and what's running on each of them can become challenging in itself. And with a complicated enough system, it's possible for virtual servers to go overlooked. And if it's overlooked and no one is using it, that brings down the operational efficiency of the physical machine that's running that server. And it's hard to get around performance issues as well. A dedicated physical server that is only running one task can more efficiently handle that task than a computer that has a virtual layer on top of the physical layer. Think of it sort of like getting permission from a boss. In a smooth operation, you just go to your boss and you ask for permission to do something and you get it or you don't get it. But in a company that has, say, a bloated middle management layer, maybe first you have to go through a lower level manager who doesn't have that authority, but you still have to talk to them before you can get access to the boss who actually does have the authority to say yes or no to your request. It slows things down. Well, virtual platforms can also slow things down a little bit. So that's another potential drawback to virtualization. However, overall, virtualization has been a huge reason why we've seen such explosive growth in online services. And it continues to be important for developers who are creating programs for multiple platforms. And so I hope this episode has sort of given you an idea of what virtualization is all about, where it came from, and why it's important. Uh, it's definitely something that has enabled us to have a world where we have discussions about things like the Internet of Things. Without virtualization, we wouldn't have the ability to support all those services because you wouldn't have a data center large enough to hold all the actual physical servers you would need to dedicate to each and every task. It would be a terrible waste of space, of energy, of resources, of money. So virtualization has really helped create an efficient and cost-effective approach to deploying numerous services across the internet. So we'll probably see a lot more development in that space. We'll see more competition in it, uh, although the big players will probably hold on to a pretty large market share. They've got time on their side and their reputations are built on that. So I'll probably do some more episodes about virtualization or the companies involved in it in the future. In the meantime, 
Thank you so much for this suggestion. I greatly appreciate it. It's the sort of topic that uh, I used to cover all the time on Tech Stuff, but it's been a while since I've covered one like this. So, Martin, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope the rest of you were able to learn something from it. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes, you can send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Drop on by our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. There you're going to find an archive of all of our past episodes, as well as links to things like our social media presence and our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 